0: Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Um, we like to track topics that are happening in the news and talk about how they relate to our organization, our mission. Um, Anti-Semitism is trending right now as a topic. Um, and anti-Zionism is trending as a topic, and actually the two are quite related. I had a realization, I think, in the last year that um, sort of larger society is okay with Jews, as long as we're not too Jewish. Um, If we are not too into our heritage, like not too weirdly religious, and if we're not too into our land, like we shouldn't be Zionistic, if we mostly come off as like secular Jews, maybe say oy occasionally eat a bagel. Um, maybe we are passable Jews. Um, the truth is that there are similarities for other minorities. There's a the similarity for how the black community was treated that, you know, uh, sort of whiter black people um, were given, you know, preferential uh, treatment uh, in the age of slavery. There's a, a term we don't use anymore to describe um, sort of the, the black person that, um, you know, is obsequious to the white person and tries to fit in. Um, and it got me thinking that this is not acceptable that Um, Minorities, including Jews, should be able to be fully who we are, uh, fully lean into uh, what makes us unique. Um, And in an age of continuing to celebrate minorities, um, and we've seen so many of these bad patterns, thankfully ending for other groups, for the Jewish community, these patterns have not ended. We are still uh, being uh, made fun of, uh, mocked so openly in media, for being too religious, for being so backwards, so, uh, you know, um, not with the times, if we're quote unquote too orthodox. Um, And we're raked over the coals if we believe that we should have a homeland um, and that we have, you know, a a thousand year old connection to uh, the land of Israel. Um, And I got to speaking recently with a historian. Um, His name is Dr. Josh Carlip um, about Have we seen patterns like this before uh, in Jewish history? Um, And I asked him to come onto the show to discuss when and where we've seen similar patterns where non-Jewish regimes have um, kind of asked us to disavow our heritage, our connection to our land in an effort to fit better in. And I think, um, you know, if we wanna understand where we are today, where we're going, it's always important to understand our history. Uh, So Dr. Karlov, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. And, and I just
0: want—I want to give our, our listeners just a quick uh, intro onto uh, your your background. Um, so you are the Herbert S. and Naomi Denenberg Associate Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. Uh, you taught at Yeshiva College during college. Bernard Revel Graduate School. Um, it, um, you have served as associate director of YU Center for Israel Studies. Um, written numerous publications, A Tragedy of a Generation, um, and your current book project is Rabbis in the Lands of Atheism, the Struggle to Save Judaism in the Soviet Union. So yeah, thank you for uh, for joining us on the show today.
1: It's my pleasure. It's an honor to be here with you.
0: Thank you. So, um, so I guess um, probably the most famous, um, you know, point in history, because we eat these fun little cookies to go along with it, of a non-Jewish regime uh, putting on the Jewish community to be just a little less Jewish, to, uh, you know, be acceptable, um, are the Greek Hellenists. Uh, Am I right? Is that sort of the the time, the first time in Jewish history that we have uh, this um, sort of um, deal that's offered to us by non-Jews?
1: A historian is always a little bit afraid to say the first time, you know, because one time before that I'm not thinking of. But it's certainly the most major time in antiquity um, and something that served as a real um, a model for the future. Um, Mm -hmm. And not only where we made that offer, you know, you can be totally accepted um, if you accept um, our culture and our pantheon of gods and. give up your religious particularity, um, but it also is a foreshadowing of the type of uh, culture wars that we have today, to this day, uh, Mm -hmm. between Jews who feel that the price is not worth paying um, and those who do feel it's worth paying. um, And those who believe that it's worth paying, painting the others as fanatics, as um, narrow-minded, as... um, Um, clannish, you know, all of those things.
0: Actually, that's another interesting point. I'm curious, did we see those patterns within the Jewish community in historic times where the ones that dug their heels in and said, we won't give up who we are, does there become this battle between the Jewish community of the people that are accepting the non-Jewish culture in an effort to save themselves, to survive? Do they feel um, annoyed by their religious brethren who are insisting on being so Jewish still.
1: Yeah, I want to briefly, I'm a modernist, so I'm not going to say too much about the medieval period, but I will say one thing. Okay. And that is um, in the medieval period, there really was in most places, there always were exceptions. Um, there really in Christian Europe, you know, if you're Jewish, you have certain many legal disabilities. The really only one major ticket out was conversion. Throughout history, throughout in every generation, there were Jews who converted to Christianity. Um, and they were joining the many against the few. And I think that it's not accidental that it was amongst those converts that we had some of the biggest uh, prosecutors against the Jewish religion. Um, in uh, 1240, there was the disputation between uh, Nicholas Donin and um, Rabbeinu Asher, who was known as the Rush. Um, Nicholas Donin was a former Jew who had converted to and become a, uh, a, a priest. Um, it happened again with Pablo Christiani a generation later with Ramban. It happened in 1414 in Tortosa with Yehoshua Halorki who became uh, Ger- Geronimo de Santa Fe, you know, and it happened throughout history. Um, in the modern period, the Jews were first given a choice to remain Jewish and enter mainstream society, but with a big price. And that came at the time of the French Revolution, uh, when uh, the Jews were offered emancipation, were offered to become citizens like everyone else. But from the beginning, even the advocates of emancipation, one of them, the biggest one was named Clermont Tonnet, And he made a famous speech in the French National Assembly in 1789, soon after the revolution. And he said, quote, to the Jews as individuals, everything. To the Jews as a nation, nothing. Hmm. In other words, if Jews are going to become citizens of France, they're going to have to give up everything that is nationally particular about them. they're, strange, they're, they're overtly strange customs, living in a community that runs itself according to halacha, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was the admission ticket into European society.
0: Hmm. So this whole idea of liberty, fraternity, egalite, I may have said it wrong, freedom, uh, equality, brotherhood, uh, not if you uh, feel the need to remain a Jew, you have to uh, disavow yourself. So, what what happened at that point? So, the Enlightenment. Then um, we have this split now between the Jewish community. What percentage of the community takes Napoleon's um, offer? Uh, what percentage um, digs in their heels and says, uh, you know, we're not going to work on Saturday?
1: Right. Um, so. The community, except it was granted emancipation. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the Jews were one of the only groups that had to swear an oath of loyalty when mm-hmm. they when they became emancipated, when they became citizens. And you, know, you don't have the, the the analogous situation with many most Christian groups. Um, but in 1806,
0: Actually, can I should interrupt you quickly. What did they gain with their emancipation? What were they lacking before? And what changed through emancipation? Um,
1: First of all, um, most Jews at the time, the the majority of Ashkenazi Jews, the overwhelming majority, lived in um, the border area between France and Germany, Alsace-Lorraine. So with emancipation, they can go and live anywhere they want. Um, They also now are citizens like everybody else. Now, it is fair to say that... Before the French Revolution, there's no such thing as a citizen in a modern sense because everybody's a subject of the um, emperor. However, they're creating a citizenship and they're telling the Jews, "You're either going to be citizens like everyone else and enjoy all the rights of of a French citizen, or you're going to be something other." And in order to be a citizen, though, you have to make this trade-off. Um, and so I think most Jews did it without necessarily. Um, the average Jew, let's say, without necessarily understanding just um, what they were, what they were ready to give up, you know, and over time, there becomes a a momentum, you know, when a Jew moves to Paris, so if they move to Paris, they're not going to speak Yiddish anymore, and the Jews of Alsace-Lorraine spoke a Western form of Yiddish, they're going to speak French, and Slowly, over the course of the first half of the 19th century, the majority of French Jews shed their what we now call religious orthodoxy, right? Mm -hmm. And give up those halachot that that are seen as the most bizarre. Mm -hmm. Kashrut for many, Um, Shabbos. Um, And the majority of French Jews over the course of of the first half of the 19th century um become while there's not an ideological reform movement there well that germany's the center for that um they become um much less observant
0: what happens in terms of uh the their numbers of retention how many how do we have a sense of how the population goes as they begin to um sort of peel away their observances and traditions
1: um we have to remember that The Jews of Europe, for the most part, through the 19th century, didn't have the choice of radical assimilation that we have today, you know, of intermarriage and just disappearing away. In order to intermarry, they still had to convert. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, there certainly was that process, but it was more of a slower um, acculturation, and you had more of a retention rate than you have, let's say, in America today. However, in Germany, at the beginning of the 19th century, you really did have a wave of conversions. You know, a wave of conversions out of convenience because people didn't want to live in two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to say that in 1806, Napoleon gets um, messages from non-Jews in Alsace-Lorraine complaining that Jews are not living up to their side of the bargain. They're still mm-hmm. too parochial. They're still lending money at interest. They're still living in their own communities. So he creates something called an assembly of Jewish notables and he poses questions to them. And based on the answers to the question is whether or not they get to keep their emancipation. And the questions are things like, is divorce allowed in, uh, under Jewish law? Um, and the, and the, the reason they're asking that question is because divorce was not allowed under French civil law because French civil law was based on Catholic law. Um, can Jews have more than one wife? Um, here's the most sensitive. Can a Jew marry a Christian? And so um, do do Jews consider Frenchmen their brethren or do they consider them aliens? And the assembly with some rabbis and some lay people recognize that based on how they answer, it will be whether or not they get to keep their emancipation. So they answer definitely in a very smart way, not always a hundred percent truthfully, mm-hmm. so for instance, about when it comes to intermarriage, they say technically the Torah never says anywhere in the Torah you can't a Jew can't marry a Christian like you know, because the five books of Moses don't mention Christians, you know because it's you know uh, um, it's thousand of years before you know the rise of Christianity. Um, but and technically, the Torah only talks about seven nations, right? But there's this little technicality called kedushin, and kedushin only takes effect with two Jews. So therefore, the rabbis will not perform a ceremony of marriage between a Jew and a Christian. You know that's how they get that's how they get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see that this notion of dual loyalty that we so much hear today against Jews who are pro-Israel. How can you be a Zionist? How be How can you be pro-Israel and also a loyal American? goes right back to 1806. Um, mm-hmm. Can you be a, a loyal Frenchman and also a member of the Jewish nation? The answer mm-hmm. that Napoleon was giving, and really that the Assembly of Jewish Notables was willing to say, at least on record, was no, and that we're Jews only by religion and not by nationality. But even the religion can't be too national looking. you know. So, so the reform movement in Germany the first reform, major reform temple in Hamburg um, in 1819, um, one of the first changes they made to the liturgy, to the S- Siddur was they took out all references to Zion and, the Sh- and Shivat Zion, the return to Zion, they took out references to the chosenness of the Jewish people, you know, anything that was too particular because Jews had to prove that they're loyal Germans. In Germany
0: who, who, who asked them to do that in Germany? We have the you know the leadership in France you mentioned, who in Germany was putting that pressure on the Jews?
1: Um in France it happened all emancipation happened all at once. In right. Germany it was a slow, protracted process. Um, that lasted for decades and decades, because Germany, you have to remember, until 1871, there wasn't a one German state. There were lots of little German states, and so they were all going at their own pace. But Mm -hmm. all of them had this uh, quid pro quo. Right Mm -hmm. was called rights in exchange for regeneration. Right, you know, you Jew, everybody, the the Jew haters and the Jew defenders um, did not differ on the fact that the Jews needed serious... um, as we would say in shipur." you know, the Jews need serious work. They need serious uh, repair. What they disagreed on was the cause. The anti-Semites said, that they're just innately um, like that. You're never going to change them. And the defenders said, it's because of persecution, but if you give them rights and they change, um, they'll come around. Um, and so that, was, that, that whole ideology was what was driving it in Germany.
0: So even the Jew defenders, still the idea was to de-Jewify as to make us less Jewish. It was just a little like a benefit of the doubt that we were so weird because we've been persecuted. But if you just be nice to the Jews, they won't be so weird. Am I getting right?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. But the Jews have to live up to their end of the bargain. Mm You see, what this did to those who bought into this on the Jewish side was that, of course, if there's still anti-Semitism and we're still not accepted, right, or we still don't have emancipation yet, it's always our fault. You know, it must be that we haven't lived up to our end of the bargain. And increasingly, as there's a backlash of anti-Semitism in Germany in the later part of the 19th century, um, that's what also the Christian side is saying. You didn't live up to your side of the bargain. In other words, and even as it turns out, as we look back on this, the most that the Jews would offer was not enough for many, many of on the German side. So in other words, German Jews believed if we reform our religion, and we say we're Germans by nationality and we're Jews by religion, and we don't keep these weird ceremonial laws, but we, you know, just start focus on Jewish ethics and monotheism, but we still have our own temples and we still have our own community, that's enough. And Many Christians were saying, no, it's not. We expected you to completely disappear. Okay.
0: And what about I know these are the the main centers. What about a place like England? Are there any other countries that there's something similar happening or like I mean, there's sort of the Enlightenment is happening in Western Europe altogether. So is there anything else notable happening kind of in that area of the world um, at the same time for Jews?
1: I'm sure there is. I'm not an expert. I'll be honest. I'm not an expert on England. So (laughs) I'm going to not say too much about, you know, about these other places, but I do want to speak about the the country that I am an expert on and that's Russia, you know. And in Russia, in the um, 19th century, um, and Russia is an autocracy, right? So it's a very different type of regime. Um, Nicholas I, Tsar Nicholas I concludes that, these Jews are a possible fifth column who live in the Pale of Settlement, the Pale of Settlement, which are you know today Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, um, parts of what today are Poland. And they're never gonna be good Russian subjects as long as they're so different, as long as they dress differently and speak differently and have these bizarre customs. And so um, he set up about to try to acculturate them more. Um, one way was through the draft, through a, dra- a draconian draft, you know, which was um, a certain number um, about four to eight at per thousand um, youth um, who would be drafted for 25 years and if they're under 18 for 31 years. Um, and what's interesting, and, and many other things, what's interesting is that the Masculine, the Jewish Enlighteners, got, they jumped along with this ideology. Mm. Uh, and they basically said, we have to change ourselves. We have to prove ourselves. So a group of Masculine petitioned the czar in the 1840s and wrote in the letter to the czar, the Jews of Russia are never going to integrate as long as they wear these strange clothes. Mm. Uh, ban traditional Jewish clothing. Now, if you would go in a time machine and land in Vilna in 1840, um, the closest thing that I would say, um, in terms of the dress, would be it would look like um, Hasidim today: long black coats for the men and fur hats, strimals, Women wearing, um, you know, turbans and actually many even shaving their heads. Um, and this was a uniform Jewish custom throughout Eastern Europe. We consider it Hasidish today because the Hasidim dug their their dug in their heels and said, mm-hmm. "We're not giving this up." Um, but the Maskely petitioned the government, and by the way, um, and then wrote at the end of the letter, please don't give our names to the Jewish community. <laughs> um, so, you know, got to hide themselves that way. Um, and, and the Tsar's government went ahead and banned traditional Jewish clothing. Um, that's one example. Um, in And I, I don't want to generalize and say that the Haskalah was all about this. There were um, more positive elements. There, were, there was a revival of the Hebrew language. And... Um, even what some historians might call a proto-nationalism of sorts, but this was a this was a pretty big you know element of it also.
0: Practically speaking, did Jews stop wearing the black frocks and strimals for a certain period of time because it was illegal?
1: Um, so different Jews took different texts. Um, some did, and other places, like for instance in Warsaw, um, the, Gera Re- the first Gera rebbe. Um, lived in Warsaw at the time, even before he went to the little town of Gare, um, and he um, figured out, helped figure out a loophole, and that was um, that the Jews, okay, so you have to register what kind of clothing you want to wear. Do you want to wear German clothing, which was sort of like, you know, short jackets, what we think of as Western clothing, or Russian clothing, and guess how Russian men dressed? They had long beards, they wore long coats, so What a lot of people in Warsaw did is they just sort of changed their, they kept the long coat, but they changed the buttons around a little bit and declared themselves as wearing Russian clothes. And so sometimes that's how a lot of Hasidic groups got around it. Um, But the Litvisha in general um, didn't have that option. Um, Mm -hmm. The laws were stricter there because it was closer actually to real Russian territory. And that's why... that's why in the Litvish world today, they don't wear that classic East European Jewish garb most of the time that today we call basically Hasidic garb because those are the ones who maintained it.
0: So anyone that has family from Eastern Europe that's Ashkenazi, even if you don't have Hasidic roots specifically, your great-great-great-grandparents probably dress like today's modern Hasidic Jews, pretty similar to that?
1: I, I, it's it's the most similar yeah it's the most similar and the men had you you, you read descriptions they had what we would call the, the kaisel to us, you know the long twisted pay hmm. uh, yeah yeah i mean look it's not exactly the same but you know if if the person would you know uh come back today and you know have uh you know and and a resurrection and you know land in in new york they would say the people in williamsburg look the most like hmm. like they like they did yeah
0: Okay, so that is that is uh, Russian history in terms of the czar, and then obviously with uh, the USSR, there was another uh, you know sort of trying to dejuify the Jew. Is that something else that is an area that you study, or
1: very much so? That is, um, you know, that was the czar, what was going on um, with the czar on steroids. You know, in other words, I, I often tell my students the czars were generally nasty, but they were very inefficient. So. Mm-hmm. They, they generally didn't accomplish that much towards their goal um, of de-Judaizing the Jews, but the communists, you know, the Bolsheviks were extremely efficient. Um, and so, you know, they accomplished in a, in a few years what the czars had not over decades. Um, basically, um, the Soviets made a, you know, basically offered the Jews the same type of deal. Um, you can be soviet citizens and you can even rise as individuals to the top um mm-hmm. as long as um but orthodoxy you know was forbidden jewish religion was virtually forbidden um and zionism was considered um an absolute um anathema absolutely trace you know and so you can be a jew it, Historians have often put it. There was a historian Ezra Mendelssohn at Hebrew University who put it this way: the Soviet Union was good for Jews, but bad for Judaism. In other words, an individual Jew was willing to give up virtually all, every aspect of the Jewish identity, except a narrow Soviet Yiddish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that was de Judaized because even the even the word, even the language, the Hebrew, what all the Hebrew words were basically um, spelled completely differently in Yiddish to take away to to, to remove it from its religious and national roots um, and if you go along with that you can rise as high as you want mm-hmm. uh, but if not you know if you're an Orthodox Jew, if you're a Zionist, if you're anything you know you face um, you know persecution at best and you know uh, jail time you know at, at, and worse and execution at worst. Now, I have to say that was before World War II. After World War II, um, it's not good to be a Jew either in the Soviet Union, which leads me to my next conclusion that what we see happening now in America you know, is very similar in the sense that the people, there are many Jews who are willing to go along with this deal to protect themselves. And they're happy to, to, to throw the Jewish-looking Jew to the wolves. Mm-hmm they're doing in the long run is they're weakening, um, when they weaken the whole Jewish community that way, um, they themselves ultimately become the target. So it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow. But those Jewish communists who are called the Yavsaktsia, the Jewish sections of the Communist Party, who zealously shut down schools and shut down Hadarim, you know, Jewish one room schoolhouses. they were empowered by the state to do that and they did it with a vengeance and they got benefits, you know, mm-hmm. in the 20s and, and into and you know into the 30s. But by the by the mid-30s, there were purges, and those who weren't killed in 36-37 were killed in 1951. Mm-hmm. All the Yiddish writers in the Yiddish elite was murdered by Stalin. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they had basically first they went after all the the um the jews who were deemed unkosher right according to soviet ideology um and then once they did that dirty work then the regime turned on them
0: all right so the message basically is uh we have to stay united as a people and uh and not erase ourselves not uh give in and i mean obviously um we're living in a time where thankfully It is legal to be Jewish. It is legal to, uh, you know, look Jewish, practice uh, Judaism, be a Zionist. Um, But I think the thing that people are feeling scared about now is it's feeling less and less popular. It's feeling less and less comfortable. There's more and more disdain if you do these things openly. Um, And, you know, with this history, with these, you know, numerous uh, similar patterns throughout the generations, um, I think we just have to keep our eyes open as to uh, what's developing. Would you agree? Is that a...
1: 100% agree. I just want to say one last thing. And that is that um, the situation today, you're right. It's not forced like it was in the Soviet Union. But um, there's tremendous pressure. So you have a professor, I'm blessed to teach at Yeshiva University, uh, the flagship Jewish uh, university outside of Israel, um, and proudly a proudly Zionist institution. Uh, but. Um, I have many, many colleagues who, who teach at secular universities, and last year during the war in Gaza, there was tremendous pressure put on them to sign anti-Israel statements. Mm-hmm. And many, I saw many colleagues' names on these statements, and I can only surmise that some of them actually believed this anti-Israel rhetoric, but many of them felt compelled to mm-hmm. sign And, you know, it's the same dynamic
0: try to save yourself. Wow, fascinating. And um, I think we have to keep uh, reminding ourselves of where we came from so we can, um, you know, be aware um, and, uh, you know, share this information with others because we, I think the thing about being Jewish, you don't, you don't want to let history repeat itself when it's a uh, negative history. So thank you so much for elucidating this uh, pattern for our, our listeners today. Um, and we wish you continue.
1: It's my pleasure, Alison. Thank you for everything you do.
0: Thank you. And you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.